Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Praise your holy name once again for another Wednesday. Thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for all things. We thank you even for the weather. Father, we are grateful. Be thou exalted in Jesus' name. Lord, even as we go into your word, we ask that, Lord, you lead us and guide us by yourself, O Lord, in the name of Jesus. Father, at no point today or at any other time, Father, will we ever speak lies from this altar in the name of Jesus. The Lord God will continue to follow your word and your word alone, Father, in the name of Jesus. Father, help, help me, guide me, Father, Lord, even as I speak to your children today. Father, give them open hearts. And Father, give them open spirits to receive what you have for them this evening. For it is in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Amen. Good evening, everybody. How are we doing today? It's, uh, it's another midweek. We are almost unbelievably at the end of another month, and we are staring at the barrel of the middle of the year. And you would ask yourself, where did all the time go? But here we are. It's by God's grace. Today, we're going to be continuing with the series that we have been looking at over the last several weeks, which is Proverb A Day. A Proverb A Day. A proverb A Day will keep the doctor away. Um, we've looked at different proverbs, and today we're going to be looking at a very special proverb, also a very popular one, which is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 34. It's very short, and it's also one that. I'm sure we have all seen at one point or the other. The Bible tells us, it says, Righteousness exalted a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. This is a, as I said earlier, it's a very popular proverb. It's one that most of us can quote with our eyes closed. It's one of those ones that. We don't even need to open our Bibles before we can say it. We say, yes, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. So you might hear variations. Some people say, but sin is a reproach to its people, or sin is a reproach to the people, or some other things. But the Bible actually here says any people. So when we look at that, what's, what's the first thing that comes to mind? We think to ourselves that, oh, a nation in righteousness. This word righteousness, what does it mean? If we're to define it naturally, we would say, oh, you know, being justified before God, being in right standing before God. But in a sense, we can say there are two kinds of righteousness. There is the righteousness that has been imputed into us by God, whereby by the fact that we're giving our lives to Jesus Christ, we can then stand justified before the throne of God that, yes, I am indeed righteous. So I can call myself a righteous man. Not because I believe I'm the best person that has ever existed, but because by virtue of Jesus dying for my sins, I am righteous. He has made me righteous. But then there's another kind of righteousness, one that we can call personal righteousness, a kind of righteousness that is supposed to be acted out, that we are supposed to do. This lives in things like justice. It lives in things like respect, like discipline. How do we act? How do we live? These are some of the things that we look at when we consider that word righteousness, especially in this context. So the Bible here tells us that righteousness exalted a nation. Let's start with that. So who is a nation? 
If I ask for the definition of a nation, some of us might consider it as a geographical expression. Some might consider it as, you know, some people just say it's a country. And uh, in a sense, that won't be completely wrong. But more than that, the word that is usually used as nation in the Bible refers more to a people, a group of people, than simply just a country. It's not simply a geographical expression, but more than anything, it's a group of people together. And that's what they usually call a nation. So when they say righteousness exalts a nation, that word exalted means to lift up. Something is lifted up. And therefore, that means if we're to read this, if we're to render this another way, we would say justice and goodness and good works raise up or lift up a group of people. And then on the other side of it, we see that it says sin is a reproach to any people. I think that's important because we all know what sin is. Some people call it Satan in nature. I've heard that. <laughs> Some people say it's an acronym, Satan in nature. And I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful. I wouldn't define it that way, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a place to start where you'd be like, okay, well, yes, for all intents and purposes, we can go along and say something like that. But it's true that sin is a reproach to a people. Some other versions of the Bible say that sin is a disgrace to any people. And that's important because it didn't say to the people, it says to any people, meaning that it doesn't really matter where they are from. It doesn't matter their skin color. You know, sin is not just a reproach to black people. Sin is not just a reproach to white people. Sin is not just a reproach to any other color that we like to talk about, the yellow people, the blue people, the whatever color you want to call them. Sin is not simply a reproach that acts on this thing. Sin is a worldwide problem. It's a problem that affects every single individual, every single place. Now, why are we talking about this? It's because we live in an age where we seem to have forgotten this fact. Where we seem to have forgotten the fact that righteousness, justice, doing the right thing is something to be desired. But rather, we decide that we want to live in any way that we want to live. You know, there was a historian that wrote once in the early 1900s. He said that it's unfortunate that in the telling of history, in the story of the world today, there has been not enough emphasis placed on the place of declining morals in the destruction of some of the greatest empires that we've ever heard. You think of the Roman Empire, you think of the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, any of these great empires, if you are interested in history, and you listen, or even the Oyo Empire, so if we come closer to home. When I was in secondary school, when, whenever we, I, I, I was in art class, so I did history. So when we did history, they taught us about different kingdoms. So the Oyo Kingdom, the Dahomey Kingdom, Songhai Kingdom, all of those different kinds of kingdoms. They gave us a surface level. We never really went deep, but they gave us a surface level understanding of what these places were. So usually what would happen is that in the, our notes, there was a section where you'd be like, okay, why the empire rose? And then there'll be another section where it says why the empire fell. And this was the, when it was time for exams, we loved reading about 
the rise and fall of empires. And the reason for that is because the fall of empires was usually a copy and paste job. So essentially, you say, why did an empire fall? Oh, lack of funds. No, no, um, not a strong military. Kiniko, uh, Kiniko, this and that, and that. And if you read through every single fall of an empire, those same things were always there. So it was so easy to prepare for it. When you have to prepare for your exam, just be like, okay, they're going to ask us about this kingdom, and they say, what caused it? For? Ah, let's go. Lack of funds, lack of this, lack of that. I know it's everywhere. But something that a lot of people did not pay attention to was also the fall of morals, the, de- the decay and degradation of a sense of morality and justice in any society. And we are seeing it again today. There are different countries right now that are falling, including ours. Because I cannot, I cannot but notice the relationship between our rise, between the rise in godlessness in this nation and a higher degree of suffering. And the reason for that is very simple. You see, when you read this kind of thing, you might think to yourself that, oh, what's the Solomon doing? He's bringing religion into this thing. This thing is not about religion. So people will tell you that, oh, you know, when, when you're thinking about government and everything, don't put religion. We've, we've fallen into this idea of separating the state and the church so much to the point whereby we're like, they should never have any interaction. And that has never been the case. Yes, they are not supposed to be interwoven. That's wrong. Because we also try to do that after the early church. So in the early part of Christian history, there was, the, there was this push to merge church and state. And because they merged it, it became a problem. But in our bid to not fall into that error, we've now decided to push them to polar opposites and suddenly, none is like there's no influence of the church in affairs of the state. And there's no one thinking about those kinds of things. When you look at this thing, you might think to yourself that, well, Solomon was saying this and it's, it was involving Israel. But no, it's not an Israelite thing. It's a worldwide thing. It affects all people. That's why the Bible here says that sin is a reproach to any, any people, any people. If we turn to a parallel passage in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11, or verse 10 and 11, I should say. The Bible tells us, it says, When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth, and when the wicked perish, there is shouting. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. That's a fact. We find it difficult to link the righteousness of a nation with its prosperity. But if you just look at Israel, we would see. This is something that God had already talked about. If we, if we look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 to 14, we see a list of blessings. This was one of the <laughs> scariest chapters in the Bible for me when I was growing up. You know, because you read the good parts. So they give you the sugar first. And so you read the good parts from verse 1 to 14. It says that, okay, if you follow my statutes, if you follow my commandments, 
these are the things that will happen. And you read it, and you're like, ah, beautiful. To be well with your going in, to be well with your going out, you plant, you sow, you reap, everything will be amazing. I would, uh, your enemies will come at you one way, scatter them seven ways. They will do this, they will fall apart, they will do this. Ah, you are so happy. You are amazed. But you see from verse 15, things got decidedly darker. But then, these two things were preceded by simple preambles. The first set was, if you obey my commands, if you listen to my voice, if you follow my statutes, these are the things that will happen. And the second one that is decidedly darker comes from something else. says, if you don't follow my statutes, if you don't follow my commands, if you don't follow this, this is what will happen. Now I'm saying this, and a listener, someone who is not of any religious affiliation might be like, ah, but why are you then trying to force down these rules of this God, of this unknown God down our throats? And the answer to that is, when God laid that command, on one side of it, there was his justice and his punishment. But another side of it that we don't consider is that lawlessness, anarchy, and death are natural consequences of sin. Natural. Not necessarily God raising his hand and striking against the person. They're just natural. Because what does this mean? It means that we start to love less. And when we start to love less, it means that we no longer think of our neighbors. We become a lot more selfish. We, we begin to celebrate things that are, for the most part, evil and calling them good. When we start to think of ourselves more, when we start to do all of these things, we find that the natural thing that comes after it is a falling away of everything, of morals, of understanding, of so on and so forth. With this beginning, I think we now have to look at it from a more personal angle. Because everything I've been saying so far, you're thinking to yourself, well, yes, if a nation is godless, this is what will happen to them. If a people are godless, this is what will happen to them. If a people are righteous, this is what will happen to them. But what does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for us and our lives as Christians? Something I really wanted to hammer in today is this, is the fact that too often believers don't recognize the role that they play in society in general. You know, when you, when you're walking on the street, or not even just Christians, people in general, they don't, they don't realize what their actions mean because they do mean something. Too often we think to ourselves that things are not related, there's no correlation. So you're on the streets, and I'm sure you've seen this at one point or the other in your life. You're sitting in a bus, you're going from one place to another, an individual decides that he is going to have La Cacera and Gala, because that's all they have. And it's the normal, that's the lunch meal on traffic, it's just normal. So you have your La Cacera and you have your Gala, and the person is done with it. And in the most casual movement ever, just anyhow. And 
there was a time in my life that I just thought that, okay, well, that's just life. That's just normal. Until they started to teach me, like, no, you don't do that. Or if you go to another country and you find their roads so clean, and you're like, ah, wow, how did these people ever get here? How they got there is that individuals started to not throw stuff on the road. And so if you ever to, and I think I might have confronted someone once. I don't think I did it after that again. But I think I might have confronted And you get that, what's your business? Hey, what's your own? Are you the, are you, are you the owner? Are you the one that is manning the, are you the one, are you the one? And they do it. And sometimes we don't realize what that means. As Christians, there's something we must come to realize. Our sin matters. And it just doesn't matter in the context of ourselves. It matters in the context of our surrounding and the world around us. But in the very same vein, and probably even more importantly, our righteousness matters. Our righteousness matters. You're sitting around thinking to yourself that, I'm living, I'm doing good. I'm following God's word. And good for you. A lot of us, we do it because that's the way to do it. We want to do it. Some other people will be like, well, for the sake of myself, I want to live a good life. I want to do, I want to do good. I want to live well. I want to do all of those things. But a part of it that we don't realize is how important it is for not just us, for, for those around us. When the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, it means it on a national scale, yes. But it also means it on a very personal scale. Because as I said, that word nation talks about people group. If you look at the definition of the word in the Greek and in the Hebrew, one of the words that accompanies it as a um, synonym is the word community. And when you start to think about it in, in the terms of community, it becomes a little different to us. Because when we say nation, the idea it springs up in our mind is this huge entity that we are just one incredibly minute cog in all of this. But when we say community, you might sit up a little straighter and be like, ah, okay. Because you're part of a community. I'm part of a community. And righteousness exalts communities. And sin is a reproach on those communities. Righteousness exalts communities and sin is a reproach on those communities. So the questions we have to ask asking ourselves is, how then do we live in the spaces that we occupy? What is our conduct? What is our action? How do we conduct ourselves in these places? Because it matters. It matters. Because we're all part of communities. We have offices. We have friend groups. We have church groups, even in church. How are we behaving? Are we leading lives of righteousness? Or are we saying that, well, if I do bad, it doesn't really matter because all these other people, they're fine. They're giving their lives to Christ, they're fine. Or in your office, you're like, well, it's not like it matters anyways. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach unto his people. When we commit ourselves to living lives of righteousness, we find that we become influential. We are testimonies where we are. 
And you might think to yourself that, well, but I'm not involved in government, so it doesn't really matter. But it does. Because wherever you are, there's a government there. Your office has a government, whether you like it or not. There's a hierarchy. There are people. And there are people watching you. And there's, there's, there, it matters how you act, who you are in all of these places. It really, really, really does. So, in what ways can we say that our influence can shine while, being, while living lives of righteousness? I just have a few examples written here. The first one I like to talk about is diligence. Diligence. And let's, for that, let's just turn to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. The Bible there says, Seest thou a man diligent in his business, he shall stand before kings, he shall not stand before mean men. How diligent are we in our lives, in the things we do? How diligent are we in our work? How diligent are we in our schools? Because those people, they don't stand before mean men, they stand before kings. Those kings could be the leaders of wherever they are, Leader at your workplace, leader at your school, even the president of a country. Because that's what diligence does. Famous example, Joseph. In Exodus chapter 40, we, we read the story of after Joseph had interpreted the dreams of the king and told him that, okay, so this is what to do. And that story is really very funny because Joseph was like, okay, oh, so this dream that you had, about the uh, fat cows and the thin cows, and about the fast ears of corn and the suffering ears of corn. This is what it means, though. Seven years of enjoyment, seven years of suffering. Uh-huh. So you see what you're going to do. You will do this, 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 this. These are the exact solutions that you need to ensure that this thing goes well. And then Joseph goes, so just appoint a couple of people and then let them handle it. And then he was like, okay, let me be going. And the king said, ah, where, where do you think I'm going? Who do you think I'm going to give this thing to? He's you. What, is like, what do you mean? You've given me all this advice and then you want to start going, where are you going to? Come here. And what? He made him ruler of all of those things. Why? Because he was diligent. And the truth is this. We don't know where our diligent actions will take us tomorrow. Because... I cannot imagine any world in which Joseph thought to himself that if I continue being diligent in this prison, if I work hard, one day the Pharaoh will call me. There's no way. It's not possible. He could not have known. It's impossible. But that's exactly what happened. Why? He was diligent. And sometimes... And this is something that all of us should just keep in mind. Sometimes we just forget because you might want to slip up at work because you're like, oh, no one is seeing me. Let me just, let me just slide through today, Sha. Just, let me just slide through. It happens. It happens to everyone. But sometimes you have to remember that part of that righteousness is being diligent in our duties. And because of that, we'll stand before kings. And what do you think happens when you stand before kings? You're not standing before kings just to just hang, hang out in front of them. No. The moment you're standing before a king is because you're about to become influential in very big ways. 
Because why else will you have audience with a king? What else are you doing with him? He's not calling in there to tell him jokes. No. Coming there because, you're coming there because you either have something of value to give to him or he wants to bestow something of value to you because you've shown yourself to be trustworthy. Another thing to consider is graciousness and purity. And for that, let's turn to that same Proverbs 22, but verse 11. The Bible says, He that loveth pureness of heart, heart, for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. He that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. So this tells us that living a life of purity, living a life, being gracious in our mannerisms, in our carriage, in the way we act, in the way we look, in the way we talk, when our words are seasoned with salt, you become a friend of the king. And like I said before, king in this situation doesn't mean um, the president. Doesn't have to be your president. Doesn't mean that your president, will, um, if you are living a gracious life or you enjoy purity of heart, then Tinubu will call you on the phone tomorrow and be like, hey, let's have lunch. No, it's not always that way. But if it's purity and there's graciousness, whoever is the head of whoever you are will seek you, will seek you out. He'll seek you out. That is the power of purity. Because the truth is this. There is no leader that just simply wants to surround himself with horrible individuals. They don't. Even the ones that are horrible themselves don't want to surround themselves with horrible people. In fact, they're the ones that detest horrible people the most because they know what it's like. Because that's, that's their own character. So they don't want it. Look at it, son. When you think about it, I don't think there's anyone who would tell, who would tell me that they thought Nebuchadnezzar was a good and kind king who was just lovely, loving to everyone. He was a great king, yes, but he was not necessarily a kind king or a good king in that sense. But when it came to the ruling of his country, he still sought people with pure hearts. And that's why he picked up Daniel and his friends. That's what purity of heart gets us. That's what graciousness gets us. We should also, as Christians, ensure that we avoid revolution. And for that, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21 to 22. The Bible says, My son, fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. For their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? Amen. This is talking about the revolutionaries. There's a difference between revolution and reform. I need to, be, I need to clarify that. Reform seeks to a change of things, yes. If there's a bad law, we want that law to be reformed. But revolution, on the other hand, seeks to upend things, turn things up on their head, and cause chaos. That's what a revolution means. Yes. 
That's, that's a revolution. If you say, if they say, oh, we're having a revolution, then the idea is that you're turning things upside down. They're turning things on their head. And as believers, especially in the area of government and politics, that's not where we are supposed to be. Because ultimately, those people, when it is their time of reckoning, then they fall into trouble. They're the ones that get tried for treason and get beheaded or they suffer a firing squad and so on and so forth. And we should also ask the Lord for wisdom in our daily lives. This was the story of Daniel. Wisdom. Because when you have wisdom, when you display wisdom, wisdom from above, you will be noticed. And it's only be because you're displaying yourself or you're trying to show off. You're trying to say, oh, I'm really smart. No. Because true wisdom from God is also humble. It's a realization that whatever it is that you have is by the grace of God and not by your own strength. And that's the kind of life that can change an entire country. There's a proverb or a saying, say little drops of water make up a mighty ocean. Little drops of goodness and justice and good deeds can change an entire country. You hear about it all of the time. I remember hearing about the story of the Irish revival when they gave their lives to Christ. And as people were giving their lives to Christ and turning to God, we heard that the way that society changed was incredible. People started to pay their debts. Cinemas were empty. Dance clubs were empty. Why? Because people had been so attracted to the good that they were doing that they turned. In fact, we can go into the history of the church to see how good deeds can change. That's how the Roman Empire eventually came to Christianity. It was by the believers living lives of piety, of justice, of righteousness. History tells us that when one of the emperors, I believe it was Emperor Justinian also, was writing to another of his fellow emperors or another of his fellow leaders, he said that, I hate these Christians. I don't like them for anything. I'm paraphrasing. So I hate them. I don't like them for anything. But I can't deny that they do good. Like what they are doing, we pagans can't. We can't touch it. They show genuine love to one another. And slowly but surely, even with all the persecutions, eventually an entire empire came down. And the Roman Empire suddenly became a Christian empire. It wasn't by a war. The Christians didn't rise up and carry axes and swords and shields and all of that and go fighting. No. It was because of the way they conducted themselves. Because righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach. We are seeing it all around in our world today. So this is this is a charge, shall I say, or encouragement for us to examine ourselves and look at how we are living our lives in our corners, not in the outside, but in our very corners. Because you see, when we are obedient to God in the corners of our room, and we're obedient to him, we'll do the same outside.
And then when we start to raise godly families, we start to give birth to godly children. When the Bible says that children are like um, arrows in a quiver, some of, for a while I didn't understand what that meant. Until I started to realize that, oh wait, this is, the, this is one of the battles you fight against society. Because as the unbelievers are churning out disobedient and interesting children, you are churning out good ones. You are churning out good ones. And those are the ones that will go out into society to go and face what it is that is there. That's why the devil wants to destroy the family unit so badly. Because the devil knows this thing that we are talking about. He knows that righteousness exalts a nation. He knows. He knows it very well. Which is why he's attacking the righteousness of nations. And he's making them do all sorts of things. I was, I was told yesterday that the Bible has been banned in several states in the United States. Now it's been banned. Can't bring it to school. You know, there are schools that have banned prayer. Can't, you can't pray in normal Christian prayer in your school. It's a problem. Some people have labeled, some states have labeled the Bible an uh, offensive book that does not cater, is not tolerant to different kinds of people. And you want, I was wondering, ah, what do you mean? And I was asking, her, like, did they do that to any of the other holy books? So the other so-called holy books? And not that I know of. As far as I know, the other ones are still fine. But that Bible, this Bible, this one, problem. Problem. And the reason is simple. Because it's the only one that actually has any power. The rest are just, they're doing their thing. The rest are doing their thing. So we should realize something. Your righteousness matters. Your righteousness, your personal righteousness, the one you do in the corner of your room, it matters. When you wake up in the morning to pray to God and give him thanks, when you read your Bible, when you pray, when you, when you read the word of God, when you evangelize to people, when you talk to people about Jesus Christ, those little things matter. You might not realize, you might not recognize it, but it matters. It matters to your community. It matters to those around you. It matters. Just living matters. <laughs> and some of these things, they're in the small things and they're also in the big things. An example that I hesitated to bring up is there is a lady, uh, there's, a, there's a lady that sells food stuff um, close to our home, you know. And a lot of times, my wife and I would we walk, we're always walking past there all the time. When we're going to church, when we're coming back from church and everything. And not the care in the world, we don't worry about anything. And one day we went to go and buy fish from the lady. And we said, oh, madam, wants to buy fish. And I said, oh, okay, yeah. And then when she finished selling to us, she gave us an extra one. I was like, ah, okay, ah, thank you, Mao. I, I just, I just like you guys. I just like both of you. The way people are always together moving, like that, that's how people should be. Just like how you people are. And I was, and I was like, hey, are you serious? Is that, is that how it works? Hey, I was surprised. I was very surprised. And it's not the only time, and it's not the only person. Because sometimes, and I'm not talking about myself as some paragon of righteousness, but I go out in the morning sometimes and I preach. I share flyers. And I've seen people say hi to me that I, I'll be like, do I, do I know this person from? And 
Or I'll be walking by and they say, and um, I wanted to buy something from a lady and she, I think she, I said, oh, I don't have the money. And she's like, oh, no, no, just take it now. When you come back, I know you will pay. I know you will pay. That's how you're that kind of person. Why? Just been trying to carry out my life, trying to follow God. But then it starts to have an effect. I don't know what it's going to do for these people. I don't know whether in some time, in some place, they might think to themselves and say, you know what, maybe if I had to start doing things this way, perhaps. This is not to stop us from evangelism. This is not to, to get us into a place of my life will be their Bible. <laughs> no. No. But it is to encourage us. And it's an encouragement. It is. That the little thing you're doing, it matters. Your righteousness, not righteousness in your corner, it matters. You might think it doesn't. You might think that, ah, nobody, like, no one is seeing all of these things. Why am I stressing myself? But it matters. You don't know who is going to help. You don't know where it's going to take you to. You don't know how God is going to use that thing for his glory. And I pray that the Lord will help us in Jesus' name. Shall we rise?